Greetings all and welcome back to the Everyday Hope Podcast. It is good to be back with you. We are continuing our discussion of the so-called minor prophets as we wait for the release of Chosen Season 4. I'm assuming you, like me, are very impatient for that release. I am anxious for Season 4. I am going to spend the next couple of weeks as we wait for the first three episodes to release in the theater, review on seasons one through three, just just to let it wash over me before we get into season four. So if you've got the time, let's just do the same thing. But we're very excited for that release. I think, you know, a lot of the advertisement that the that the chosen team is putting out there uh, is suggesting this is going to be a difficult and an emotionally difficult uh, season. And again, remember, we know where this story is going. Right, we we know that there's a there's an inevitable turn toward Jerusalem and what that's going to mean, and so you know this is where I think a lot of that starts. So we're going to have the emotional impact of all that going on in this in this season. So brace yourselves, but let's do it. All right, but in this episode, we're going to continue our discussion of the book of the twelve, the so-called minor prophets. Uh, we did kind of an overview last time. We talked about two of the prophets that have some things in common, Amos and Hosea, and they overlapped historically in time and in the message that they were bringing. Going to try to do the same thing in this episode. We're going to talk about Nahum and Obadiah. And again, I expect that these are books you're not familiar with. That's okay. We're just going to give a high level overview of that. But they're books that have something in common. Both of them are are God delivering a message to his people about how he is going to deal with one of Israel's enemies, the punishment that is coming for that particular enemy. Nahum deals with the oracle against Nineveh, while Obadiah presents the oracle against Edom. And so we're going to talk about two of those. Just a quick word before we go there. I've kind of been trying to approach this whole thing from the point of view of why do we care, right? Why is this important to us? You know, we're the church. We're living 2,000 years after Jesus, who was hundreds of years, 600 years after all of this. So how is this relevant to us? Well, there are a couple answers to that. And the first one's the obvious one. We've talked about this before. It's our history, right? We're the wild olive branch that was grafted onto the tree. We are those who were far off, who were brought near. Paul talks about both of those things. And so the history of God's people is our history, and knowing our history is important. Look, God spent so much time in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, reminding his people to remember stuff. Remember when this happened. Remember when I did this. Remember when you were in that situation and I did this mighty thing for you. Why do you think that is? He doesn't suffer from the ego problems we do. It's because as human beings, we're naturally forgetful people. We are the what have you done for me lately people, right? And so it's good for us to constantly remind ourselves to remember what God has done for us, right? To remember who he is by remembering his mighty deeds in the way that he has protected, cared for, right? All of us. And so it's important in the fact that it's it's our history as God's people. This is our history, the history of God's people and what he's done for us. So that's a big deal. The other important reason is these books do have things to say to us today as followers of Jesus. They speak about you know, God's interaction with his people. And that has implications for us too. This is what God cares about. This is how God works in the world. This is the way God thinks about sin. This is the way God loves us. 
And sometimes we get caught up in uh, bad times, hard times, confusing times, why bad things happen to good people, why sometimes we feel like the universe is arrayed against us, whatever those things are, whether, you know, we've been, you know, living in a, in a way that's contrary to what God would have us do, or it just feels like the world's against us. We all end up in those times where we feel like God's either far away or he's angry with us or whatever. And so these prophets continually remind us of the way God loves us. And that even in in difficult circumstances, even in the craziness of the world, God is still saying, I love you. I've got this. I know you can't see it, but you need to trust me. And so when we listen to what the prophets have to say, even in some of the worst parts of it, you know, the, the most angry parts of those messages, we still find God speaking his love and words of hope to us to say, but I love you. I'm going to take care of this. You're going to be okay. There's hope for you. And we're going to actually see a little bit of that today. All right. So, Let's get into the book of Nahum. So as I said, Nahum is an oracle for uh, the southern kingdom of Judah about the imminent and inevitable fall of Nineveh, right? Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, was also Nineveh, the capital of Babylon after Babylon conquered Syria. So we're really talking about that period of time, and we can date Nahum to the last half of the 7th century, the, the last half of the 600s. And here's why we say that. First off, this happens before the fall of Nineveh, right? The oracle against Nineveh is a this what's about to happen to them kind of a thing, right? So this happens before the actual fall of Nineveh, which is about 612 BC. But we also know that this happens after the fall of Thebes. Now, that event is mentioned in Nahum 3 verses 8 to 10. And so we understand that that event from the way Nahum speaks about it has already occurred, right? So it gives us these bookends for when Nahum is speaking sometime between 663 and 612, right? So we're saying last half of the 7th century BC, right? So this is after the fall of the Northern Kingdom of Israel, but before the eventual conquest of Judah, right? And so it's important that we review a little bit of this history. Don't forget 722. This is when Assyria conquered the Northern kingdom of Israel, killed or carried off the survivors, and then repopulated the land with people they had captured from other places and other wars they did. And in second Kings 19, right? This is when you see the Syrian King Sennacherib lay siege to Judah. And we talked about this, the good King Hezekiah prays, leads the people in a revival, getting back to God, obeying God's law, reading God's law. And God strikes the Assyrian army with some kind of plague, right? They go limping back to Assyria. And we know from history, eventually two of Sennacherib's sons murder him and take over the throne. And those two are eventually overthrown by Esarhaddon, who eventually becomes one of the more famous kings of Assyria, right? So all that's going on. The sons are mentioned in that book of Second Kings. Adramelech is likely Sennacherib's son, Ardamulisu, and Sherezer is likely Sennacherib's son, Nabu Sher-Usur. Right. So these are just these are just the details. Second Kings 19 telling us what we already know from history. Assyria continues to cast a long dark shadow over Judah. Right. Judah's just sitting there right for the taking. And so they're never really free from that until Assyria is eventually con- uh, conquered by Babylon. The empire switches over from being Assyrian to Babylonian. And then Babylon casts this dark shadow over Judah. It's always the threat. And then after the defeat of 
Nineveh, 612, Babylon's now the empire. Babylon eventually destroys Judah at the very beginning of the 5th century. So 597, 587 are the two big events. And that's when the exile began. And so this message is to the people of Judah to say, look, Assyria is going to be punished. Nineveh is going to be punished because they are not just Israel's enemy, but God's enemy, right? They they don't obey the commands of God. They worship false gods. They do all of these awful things. And so he's just letting them know that this is what's going to happen. And we know for a fact that this is what happens. About 612 BC, Nineveh is destroyed by Babylon, right? And then Babylon takes over. Okay. All right. All of that. Let's talk about Nahum. It's three chapters all about what God is going to do to Nineveh. And it starts off bad. And when I say bad, it kind of feeds into the language that's used here, kind of feeds into that image of the Old Testament God being a God of wrath and a God of punishment and all that. And you do hear it right? in Nahum 1, 1 through 6. This is how the oracle is introduced. We hear things like, the Lord is jealous. The Lord is avenging. The Lord takes vengeance. The Lord vents his wrath. He comes in a whirlwind, a storm. He rebukes the sea, mountains quake. The earth trembles. His wrath is poured out like fire, right? A lot of bad. But then we get Nahum 1.7. And Nahum 1.7 says, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And it's abrupt, right? And so you think, well, how does that make any sense? How, how do we hear all of those words about God's wrath and then and get this verse 7? And I think Nahum 1.3, the way that verse starts, kind of clues us in to how we can read this. It says, God's slow to anger, but great in power, will not leave the guilty unpunished. And so what you see is God's wrath being poured out on those who continually deny him and disobey him, right? But he is a refuge. If you seek the Lord, he's a refuge. And so it's really, really great in the midst of this message of of the punishment that's going to fall on Nineveh. He reminds us, for those who seek him, for those who come to him, he's good. He's a refuge. He cares for those who trust him, right? And so that's that's kind of the way to understand that weird seeming contradiction. It's not a contradiction at all, right? All right. If you, if you really want to get into the heart of what God has in store for Nineveh, you can check out uh, Nahum chapter three. The first seven chapters are extremely harsh. It's a, it's a proclamation for what he's going to do to Nineveh. A lot of army uh, symbolism here. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, right? Never without victims. And so you hear the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears. He talks about the casualties that will mount up. Um, the Lord says, I am against you. I will lift your skirts over your face. How shameful, right? And so, you know, it, this gets really bad. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All those who flee from you and say Nineveh is in ruins will mourn for her. Who will mourn for her? No one will mourn for her, right? And so this was really, really devastating thing. And again, the, the complete conquest of, of the empire of Assyria, the takeover of Assyria by Babylon, we know that did exactly happen, right? So uh, I did want to point out one unusual thing, even more unusual than what we've seen so far. There's an unusual verse here in Nahum 1, it's verse 15, which essentially says, Look, on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. And again, it's, it's in that vein of God telling his people 
You know, good things are going to happen. This is a message of hope for you. While it's condemnation for the for the for Nineveh, it's hope for my people. But what's so unusual is essentially the same verse exists in Isaiah 52, 7. Now, if you go in your English Bibles to Isaiah 52, 7, you may see what look like different words, different English words. And again, a lot of the translations are are taking the subtleties from the Hebrew words based on the context of the sentences around it. But what you end up seeing between Nahum 1.15 and Isaiah 52, 7 is the same identical Hebrew words. There's six words in exactly the same order in both verses. So really, it's a repeat of the verse. Whether one of them copied the other or the Holy Spirit you know, gave them the same message, either thing could be true. doesn't really matter. But this is interesting because Isaiah 52, wow, it... What happens in verse 7 immediately precedes the famous passage regarding the suffering servant, right? Um, 52, 53, talk about the sacrifice of, of the servant, and it's, it's prophetic, right? Letting us know how Messiah essentially is going to suffer on our behalf. Isn't it interesting that prior to that, right, we get this announcement of good tidings, of one who proclaims peace, that what's going to happen is going to be an event that brings peace. What seems like punishment, what seems like wrath, is an event that's going to bring peace for God's people. And that's something that we we very much need to hear, especially in the prophets, where we think of the prophets mostly as bringing wrath, 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 wrath. We talked about this in the last episode, even in Amos, that is a lot about the accusations against Israel and the punishment that God was going to bring. There's still already the statement that the redemption of the people has already been planned by God, right? That hope exists because God has put it there. And the same thing's true here. This may be three chapters of mayhem for Nineveh, but God is proclaiming good news and peace to God's people, and that's us. And so we can hear that same thing. When we look around and we see mayhem and we see bad things happening, we remember that God says, look, on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace, that God is indeed a refuge for those who seek him. And that's really the message of Nahum. With me? Okay. Now, let's turn our attention to Obadiah. And Obadiah is a funny little book, and I don't mean to say little because it's unimportant, but little because it's literally little. Obadiah is a single chapter, 21 verses, and it, like Nahum, is an oracle against one of Israel's enemies, this time against Edom. You may not be familiar with Edom, but Edom has a long history with Israel, and they were not always friends. So Edom... Those people are the descendants of Jacob's brother, Esau. So if you read Genesis 36, you see the account of the family line of Esau. He was the father of the Edomites. Now, he was the elder brother of Jacob. And if you go back in Genesis a little bit, Genesis 25, you can read that story about how Jacob tricked Esau out of his birthright. Esau was the older brother, and so he should have received the blessing from their father, Isaac. But he was hungry, and Jacob traded him some stew for the birthright. And and it's kind of, you know, amazing that Esau held that honor so lightly that he would trade it so lightly. But then, you know, the story, Jacob tricks his dad into giving him the blessing. And, And so there was always enmity 
uh, between them. There are some nice moments when Jacob returns, but, but the people of Edom were always sort of antagonistic towards the people of Israel. In Numbers 20, it tells a story as Israel is now trying to pass through, get back to the the promised land and retake the promised land. And Edom refused to let the Israelites pass through their land and instead actually assembled an army and went out after him. And if you look in Judges 11, uh, the story of the judge Jephthah, actually, he tells that story, that story of Edom refusing to help the Israelites as they were returning. And then 2 Samuel 8 tells about David having subdued Edom among all the other nations that David subdued. Second Kings 8, there's a rebellion. Edom rebels against Judah under King Jehoram. And then there's this very interesting connection between Obadiah 111 and Psalm 137. And I think this is interesting. And I think, you know, if you go through Obadiah, the, the main midsection of Obadiah presents this as one of the major reasons why Edom is facing judgment. But it's interesting. Let me read this. Obadiah one eleven says, In the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. And so as the story goes, when Babylon came down to uh, finally conquer Jerusalem, uh, Edom did not help Jerusalem and may have aided Babylon in that conquest. Psalm 137.7 says it this way, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Right. So this is this is how the relationship was between Edom and Israel for all those years. It was troubled. They were not friends, and Edom was often adversarial towards them. Right. So they were they were Israel's enemies, and so this is an oracle again against another one of Israel's enemies, Edom. Now Edom was uh, southeast of the Dead Sea, not very far away, their neighbors. And Obadiah, to whom God gives this message uh, to, to, to God's people about what's going to happen to Edom. And, and by the way, it did, right? The Nabataeans destroy uh, Edom not, not long after this. But Obadiah, uh, very interesting, has an opening passage in verses 1 through 6 that is eerily similar to a passage in Jeremiah 49, verses 9 through 16. And there's a lot of ink on this. If you if you go to the interwebs and Google that, don't do that. But you can do that. And there's information about it. A lot of people will talk about, you know, which one borrowed from who, or was there a, a source that both one both of them borrowed by? But a lot of times when scholars speak like that, they're they're missing the point of prophecy. And that prophecy was God giving the prophet a message to be delivered. And if God declared an oracle against Edom, it's not unlikely that God would have said the same thing to two prophets who were delivering the same message. Now, Jeremiah and Obadiah were contemporaries. They were working at about the same time. And this section in Jeremiah is a series of oracles against Israel's neighbors and enemies. And in verses 9 to 16, that's the section where he gets to Edom. And so he says something very, very similar to what Obadiah says. It's entirely plausible that God would have said the same thing to both prophets and sent them to the people he sent them to. And so, you know, if you go through those verses, you'll find one, two, three, four, five, six large sections in that 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 are very similar 
to each other. And I think that's interesting. I think that God speaking both to Obadiah and Jeremiah against Edom would say something similar, would use the same kinds of, of symbolism and the same phrasing. So so it is kind of interesting. And if you want to, you can take a look at that. I think I think that's probably the most likely explanation, although a lot of scholars will tell you, oh, there must have been some common source that they all used and they both borrowed from the same, ah, blah, 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 whatever, right? So this is what Obadiah is about. Obadiah is bringing a message from God to his people in the early exile. Now, he's probably speaking at the very beginning of the sixth century. So he is he is prophesying to the people in exile. They've already been conquered, carried, carried away most likely. This is at the very beginning of this. And so I wonder, I wonder what a message like this would mean to a people who had just been overcome and carried away, right? W- would this be a message of hope to say, hey, don't worry, I'm going to take care of Edom, your enemy, you know, who, who stood by and maybe even helped your enemy conquer you? Uh, and that might bring some hope to them. But for me, what really brings the most hope is the way Obadiah closes this message. So in the last two verses, verses 20 to 21, Obadiah says this, the company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. And I think the people might have taken hope in that message. We talked about that with all of the prophets, uh, even the prophets that are delivering, you know, dark, angry messages from God contain this message of hope, this message of redemption. And we see it again in, in Obadiah, right? That, that there is going to be hope. There is going to be return. The people will come back and they will rule the land, which is kind of cool, right? So that's one of the things I think that's interesting for us being so far removed from that time. Uh, one of the things that we can take from Obadiah again, also like Nahum, these messages from God, uh, Nahum, Jeremiah, that section of Jeremiah, there are sections of Isaiah. When when God delivers these prophecies, you know, what we hear is, you know, it doesn't have to be that specific enemy, but what we hear is that there is no enemy that you have that can stand against the Lord once the Lord is determined to overthrow them. So you don't have to worry about that if you are assailed by some enemy. You know, once the Lord determines to overthrow that person, or that entity, whoever it is, they have no chance. And you can rest in that. The difficult part is sometimes we need to rest in God's timing. And that's always a challenge for me, right? I want God to do what I want when I want, and I want him to hurry. But sometimes God does things on his own, and sometimes he doesn't consult me on stuff. Strange, right? Sometimes he just doesn't ask, you know, Dave, what do you think I should do? So the difficult part can be waiting for God's timing, right, and God's will. But we have this assurance. Once God has determined to overthrow your enemy, his enemy, they can't stand. They have no chance. And that's that's another thing that we can take from this. Another thing is, you know, arrogance, wealth, power. If you read through, especially the early parts of Obadiah, you know, it doesn't matter how fancy you think you are. It doesn't matter how powerful or wealthy you think you are. None of that stacks up against God. God is God. God is not just, you know, some deity for Sundays. He is the God of the universe. He's the God that makes all things. You read through the last few chapters of Job if you're not clear on how big God actually is, right? So, you know, the arrogance that we have, our wealth, our power, when we're doing well, when we're successful, sometimes we get a little enamored of our own abilities and that's nothing compared to God. And he can bring someone low no matter how fancy they think they are. 
No matter what they think they've achieved, no matter how much they've been exalted, God can bring them low. So this is kind of bundled into a lot of the messages of the prophets. Obadiah definitely has this. And so, again, taking these two together now, we see what they have in common, this message, this oracle, a message of judgment from God against one of Israel's enemies, a message of hope for those people who are in bad times, a message for all of us to understand the power of God to stand up against our enemies. And I just, again, it seems like it's been a constant theme, but all of these prophets contain, even in the worst moments of them, they contain this element of redemption, of hope, uh, that there is going to be a future where God redeems his suffering, struggling people, which I think is really, really, really cool. And I think it's a theme we're going to continue to see as we go through the rest of the book of the 12. All right, so that does it for Nahum and Obadiah. Again, if you've got any questions about this or other topics, about the chosen, about the prophets, about scripture, whatever it is, uh, just hit us up on email, everydayhopepod at gmail.com. That's all one word, everydayhopepod at gmail.com. Shoot us an email. We'll do our best to answer. And don't forget, this coming Saturday, February the 3rd, is when I will be getting to see the first three episodes of The Chosen. I will do my best. I am, I'm not promising, but I'm going to do my best not to give you too many spoilers. We're going to wait to jump into discussing Season 4 until all of Season 4 is available for everybody. So we won't be getting into that quite yet. We're going to wait until they're all released and all available. But uh, I may give you a, a big uh, two big thumbs up after we see it. Okay, let's, uh, let's close this in prayer. And again, just our reminder... If you're doing something that uh, requires your attention, if you're driving, if you're watching kids, whatever it is you're doing, you know, I don't want you to bow your heads. Keep your eyes on what you're doing and just pray with us in your hearts. Lord, we thank you so much for giving us these great messages, messages that you preserve for us to see. Even though our context is so removed from them, we get to understand more about you and your interactions with your people, about how you feel about the seriousness of sin, about the fact that you don't punish to punish, but it's always to bring us back to you, about how you always have hope for us and how you love us so much, Lord. It's difficult sometimes to see, but, but as we stop and look at your word, Lord, you reveal that to us and we thank you for who you are. Lord, protect us as we go forward this week. Be with us, guide us. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. That'll do it for this episode. I will see you in the next one. And until then, peace.